Great. Let's go ahead and do this. Catherine Singleton, could you go ahead and read our passage? For, oh, you're literally right there up front. Catherine, Catherine. There you go. All right. We're going to read Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the, certain the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thus ends. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. The Lord. <laughs> it does end a little abruptly. Uh, more to come next week with what happens, a little bit of a cliffhanger ending. Uh, Genesis is kind of weird, isn't it? it? It reads talking snakes, enchanted trees, deity walking among humanity. Like, it feels a little bit more like Narnia than it does real life, doesn't it? It feels a little bit more like a fairy tale. Can we trust it? Like. Can we actually glean something out of this that is truth? Or is this just some sort of fake narrative written a long time ago? According to a 2019 Gallup poll, only 40% of Americans believe in the historicity of what's happening here. And so it is a fair question that in a room this size, that there are many who may be legitimately asking that question, welcome. Continue to ask those questions because this is hard. In going back through and studying this very slowly over the past few months and really sitting with the reality of what these passages are saying, it's worth asking really hard questions because there's really hard questions that need to be asked. I think there's at least three things to consider and remember uh, as we walk into this passage together today. The first is that this was written by Moses, the same Moses that led uh, the people of God out of Israel, in all kinds of ways, Moses was very acquainted with miracle. Moses was acquainted uh, as one who initially was spoken to by God from a bush on fire, 
who then later saw things like the entire Nile River turn to blood, who saw every firstborn child in Egypt die, that there was not blood of a lamb covering the doorposts. This is the same Moses who saw the Red Sea parted. The same Moses who saw manna provided from heaven and water provided from a rock. So maybe if it's possible for God to talk through a bush, it's possible for Satan to talk through a snake. Secondly, the New Testament uh, does treat Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in everything we've been reading as fact. Like John 8, 44. This is Jesus. Uh, on the lips of Jesus, he says, "You." he's talking to the Pharisees, uh, who he's not very nice to sometimes. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Hearkening back to this time, way back in Genesis 3, where there is this father of lies, this evil serpent who speaks and twists the truth. Thirdly, and probably the one that may be most compelling uh, to those of us sitting in this room, Christianity is not only a head religion, it is also something that we experience, that there is this, this Holy Spirit thing that we talk about, and, and that, that is a part of the Godhead that gives us literal experience with him that causes us to love him more and more, that causes us to actually open our eyes and believe that this is real and true. So like C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so a question before us this morning might be, is there, is there reality? Is this squaring, what we just read and what we will now talk about for the next couple of minutes, does this square with my reality? Do I find truth in this that I have to say, this is pointing out something that I also experience to be true? And that as maybe, as I more and more live with this as a lens for my life, I can begin to see everything else by it that the world makes more and more sense because I'm viewing things through this lens of scripture. And to the degree that that is true, it then also bolsters my faith to believe, maybe I can actually trust this. Maybe this is actually real. So as we do this, I think there's gonna be two surprises at least in this passage that you might find. And these are gonna be our two points. First, the craftiness of evil. We're really going to take a deep look into evil, which is not all that much fun. But the goal of it is to then expose it for what it is, the craftiness of evil. And then secondly, the curiosity of God. We have a curious God who pursues his people. So first, the craftiness of evil. I'm just going to keep this first verse up on the screen for a little while, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You remember Parks and Rec? Great show. Amy Poehler, Nick Offerman, uh, who's Leslie Nope and Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, they spun off a couple of years ago and did this series called Making It. 
Anybody see it? Uh, it was this like crafting competition. And they, they drew together all of these crafters and artists and inventors and makers and bakers and put them all in the same room and gave them these challenges, such as, this is a Publix cake. We want you to take this Publix cake and make it into an amazing work of art. And we want to take you to take this normal birdhouse from Lowe's and make it say something about your experience in life. So a variety of these kind of competitions happen and people are using all of their craftiness to make all of these amazing things. That's not the kind of craftiness that we're talking about. But it's the exact opposite of that. There's a word for that. That's not the word that's used. The word that's used this kind of craftiness is the kind of like a sly scoundrel who is very very intuitive, very smart, very discerning, but uses every bit of that discernment for evil and not for good. Like if you look at some of the crimes that have been committed over the course of history, some of the bank heists and all the things, like just watch the Italian job, like there are amazing uh, criminals that are so smart, but they use all of that intelligence for evil and not for good. That's the kind of craftiness that's being talked about here in this passage. And so as as we look at what what sort of intelligence is this serpent using, is Satan beginning to speak into Eve's ear? We don't know a ton about Satan. Satan. Uh, through the pages of scripture, there's not a ton that is offered about his origin, more so about his work. This is one of those places where we learn not so much about his origin, other than he does seem to be a created being, uh, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. But what we do know and continue, the Bible continues to harken back to is what kind of work does he do? He is a skilled liar, like Jesus calls him in John 8. He takes the truth and then he twists it in just the right way to get Eve and Adam and you and I to doubt reality. To to just plant enough of a seed of, I don't know, maybe God's not who he said he was. Maybe I'm really not who I thought I was. And there's a, there's a word that gets thrown around quite a bit in pop culture and in pop psychology today that's the very same thing that Satan is doing here through the work of this snake. Gaslighting. Are you familiar with this term? The term gaslighting means to confuse someone's reality just enough to use all of your intelligence to manipulate another person by twisting the truth just enough so that they will essentially feel crazy. That they will doubt everything that they know to be true and begin to be swayed to whichever direction you desire that they would be swayed. Here's a couple of the characteristics of gaslighting. See if you see them here. One is withholding. Like there's a pretending not to understand. Like, did God actually say? I don't, I don't understand. Why would he say 
that there's something you can't do. There's countering, which is questioning someone's memory of an event. Like, did he actually say that you can't eat of any tree? Wow. How dare he? Then there's a, a trivializing. After you get someone reconsidering, well, maybe, yeah, I don't know. My memory's not that great. So he may have said something like that. Then there's like a downplaying of, well, you will not surely die. This downplaying of your needs and your feelings, you won't, you'll be fine. It's no big deal. This is just small things. Just you need to do what you need to do. That's what's important here. And finally, the work of a gaslighter is to isolate from other loved ones towards the person or towards that person who is the abuser. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you, God would not want you to be like God, would he? Beginning to draw Eve away from this relationship that she had enjoyed from her creation. And she bites. And she says, ah, you know, a couple verses later, verse three, well, you know, I mean, no, that's not completely true, you know, because God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And he said, I'm pretty sure he said that I couldn't touch it either. And so already her recollection of the events have become twisted. Her understanding of the heart of God and why he would put something in their way, why he would give mankind a prohibition begins to be questioned. Well, I don't know. I never really thought about that. That just always seemed like something that we, he's God and he made me. So I guess, yeah, that's his prerogative. He can do that. But all of a sudden I start wondering, well, maybe, maybe he's not good. Maybe he doesn't have my best interest in mind. Maybe reality is not following what God says I should do, but maybe following what I want to do instead. And so she believes the lie she buys into it, she takes the fruit, she eats, and the world is never the same. But isn't it interesting that one of the grimiest of psychological abuse tactics that we find in culture today is found in the first pages of scripture and is called evil? Is it possible that 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 this gaslighting thing that we talk about is just pointing back to the originator of this evil. Maybe it is true. Second Corinthians 11, Paul warns his friends in the church, and these words are true for you and I today. He says, but I'm afraid that as... No, I'm going to dunk you in this water. Isn't it interesting? So he goes on to say, he says, but I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, I'm concerned that your thoughts may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he takes Genesis 3 and then says, in the same way that that was possible for Adam and Eve, that is now possible for you and I. That 
we are just as susceptible, actually more susceptible with the twisted hearts that we now have to the lies of the enemy. We are more susceptible to believe things that are false and to continue in this rooted unbelief in the God who actually is. Lies now infiltrate politics, workplaces, marriages, parenting, friendship, and the list goes on. And notice where the battle happens. Is Corinthians still up there? Sweet. Uh, the battle happens in your thoughts. Do you take every thought that you have as true? Do you consider the narratives that run through your mind and the emotions that you feel as all truth all the time? Is it possible that there is not one but two voices in your head? That one is the quiet, calm, still voice of the Holy Spirit and the other is the accusatory evil of Satan? Is it possible that you're actually being gaslit? And that that not first is happening on the person-to-person level, but that is happening between you and what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself and what you believe about this world. Is it possible that we have, we have uh, begun to get confused and twisted in our hearts, in our minds, in our imaginations about who we are and who God is? How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference between the voice of the Lord and the voice of the enemy? Look at the way that Adam and Eve respond here. They do two things. One, they hide. Two, they cover. The voice of an accuser makes you want to hide and cover. What are the places right now that you find yourself hiding covering? What are the things about you that you don't want anyone to know? What are the things about yourself that you so wish would not be a part of you, but the more and more you live and the more and more you try, you just can't separate yourself from them? What are the things that you continue to go back to time after time after time and say, I blew it again. I blew it again. I blew it again. I just can't. I can't Get this out of myself. Either by way of things you've done, things you think, things you feel. And then we tend to cover up those things. We cover up those things by pretending. It's not really that bad. I mean, have you seen the guy down the street? He's real bad. (laughs) Not nearly. We do that by performing We do that in the way we dress. We do that in the way we talk. We do that in the stories that we tell. We do that in the ways that we are constantly seeking approval from another person to say, yes, you are good enough. Yes, you are lovely enough. Yes, you matter to me. Oh, we so long for all of those things. 
So we're going to have an opportunity to sing a song. And as this song is sung over us, I want you uh, to consider this question. What am I hiding right now? And then what lies might I be believing that I'm living out of? Where am I hiding? What lies am I believing? And just to give you a little teaser, where might the Lord be calling me like in verse 9? Where are you? So, Matt, Janie, crew, let's sing for a minute.
you do. Money is what life is all about. Trust no one. God doesn't care. What are the lies that rule your life? What are the lies that keep you up at night? What are the lies that keep you from coming to Jesus? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? When my kids were little, we'd play hide and seek, you know, and they thought they were so crafty. And they would be hiding, you know, with their feet like dangling out under their beds and they'd be giggling in the closet and they'd be standing out in the open. And I'd say, where are you? Corbin, where are you? Like if this is him, Corbin, where don't see you? You see what God's doing here? He knows where they are. <laughs> but he's, he's calling them out. He, he's not playing this game in such a way as to degrade them, but as a way to invite them into greater closeness with him. Where are you? Meaning, I want to find you. And the call of this passage to you and I is God wants to find you. Notice, what does it say about, I don't think I have it up here, but what does it say about what God is doing as he's calling? Where are you? Kids, where are you? Is he stomping? Is he rushing? Oh no, something went wrong. This isn't the way I thought it was going to go. What is he doing? He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And there's this call, this beckoning. Come close to me. Where are you? Satan's filling your head with these accusatory words. And God comes in with both conviction. Did you, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to, knowing what they had done? Why would he ask that? To get it to come out of their own mouths. Yeah, I 
did because he wants you and I to be in relationship with him. Did you? Yeah, I did. What is he calling? He's calling them out of the bushes. And he's calling them out of the fig leaves. He's saying, don't cover yourselves in front of me. You don't have to. Let me know all of you because I will cover that. If you fast forward just a few verses later, Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, uh, Adam and his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. God is not repelled by our need, but he is drawn to fix it. He is drawn to cover it. And this is pointing forwards to another lamb who would be slain, another animal who would be slain so that a covering for sin could happen. This is the work of Jesus in the gospel. That in his perfect life, in his perfect death, his, his bearing of our shame and all of the places that we want to hide, he felt all of those places so you and I don't have to feel the shame of those things. That's already been taken care of. You and I don't have to feel that anymore. Now we can walk towards him and let him clothe us. Galatians 3, verse 27, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so there's this new confidence that I can every morning wake up and whatever thoughts are going through my head, whatever accusations I may be feeling, I can wrap myself in the righteousness of Jesus and know what? I can know that anything going on in here, anything going on in here, anything I've done, that when God looks at me, I am clothed in Jesus. And in the same way he loves Jesus, he loves me. That's the invitation that God is saying, will you come to me so that I can clothe you? Come out of hiding, admit your faults and failures and let Jesus's righteous life and his atoning death cover you. So one application and then we'll close up. Have you ever noticed, uh, those of you who are in small groups, and I invite any of you who are new, uh, it's a great first way to get connected here and to begin to live out some of what we're saying uh, in Scripture in a very real way in, uh, in a consistent manner. There's this whole section of guidelines in the small group form. And many of you may read those things every week or do pop quizzes or trivia or there's all kinds of ways that groups will do uh, those in different ways. One of those guidelines is don't fix or something along those lines. Like when someone's sharing something really hard, there's something inside of us that wants to be like, no, 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 but it's going to be okay. But God works everything together for the good of those who love him. But have you ever thought about why those words so quickly come out of your mouth? Most times, it's not because you want them to feel better. It's because you want you to feel better. Your hurt, your pain, your, your difficulty in your life, your sin that you're just telling everybody about makes me uncomfortable. And so I'm going to cover you up because I don't want to see it anymore. But the goal of our small groups is that there could be a culture of openness and vulnerability, appropriate vulnerability, that you could walk in and in these kinds of moments be able to say, 
I did it again. This is really how I'm coming in. This is really where I'm at. And to have another group of people who can see you and who can redress and love you with the love of Jesus can more and more convince us that that's actually true. So for the next couple of weeks, as we head towards Easter, uh, as we celebrate both the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to have a unique opportunity to take communion the next two weeks, actually three more times, the next two Sundays, uh, and then Good Friday before we come to Easter Sunday. So I invite you to use these next few weeks to hear God maybe in a new, clear tone, where are you? And that you in new ways, potentially, that he might be drawing you out to show more of who you actually are to him. And maybe another close friend or spouse. And as we walk this path together, that he would meet us collectively as a community and dress us with Jesus. Let's pray. So Father, we long to hear your still, small, quiet voice because the accuser's voice in our ears are so loud. We all the time hear how bad we are at things. We all the time hear all the ways that we've screwed up. We all the time hear how everybody else must hate us. We all the time hear that our life is an entire screw up and there's nothing that can fix it. We all the time hear that there is only going to be bad for us in the future. We need your voice. Speak. Speak even now uh, as we continue to sing. Holy Spirit, would you? In your name, amen.